0: Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians three sixteen through 17 over you. listening to the Dayton Women in the Word summer study series through the book of Hosea. Over the next eight weeks, our podcast episodes will consist of recordings of our content time each week during the study. Our prayer is that as Hosea 6 says, that our listeners and those who are following along either live or from afar, that you will be inspired and encouraged to return to the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth.
1: Welcome. Session three. This is part two of our Hosea one through three section. So we're finishing up chapter two and going into chapter three tonight. Again, just a warning over the sensitive subject matter in case you are listening on the podcast and your children are with you. You should know that. Um, Before we get started, I'm going to pray over us. Father, would you just meet us here in this place? Lord, I I know that there have been rich discussions already tonight about who you are, about what you're doing um, in the lives of each of these women, and I just pray that you would continue that work as we um, observe what is in your word, um, as we glean what you have for us from it, and above all, just God, we want to see you more, we want to know you more, we want to have that intimate knowledge of you, God, and relationship with you, so I pray that those are things that would grow here tonight, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, gals, tonight uh, we've got four sections. Um, The first is God's wilderness pursuit. That's the first, that's um, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. God's vision of restoration, which we'll jump around a little bit in our verses there. Um, God's wedding vows to Israel, and then God's picture of redemption. So, where we left off last week was God calling Hosea to marry unfaithful Gomer as a picture of God's broken marriage covenant with Israel. God asked Hosea to name his children with symbolic names that were proclaiming judgment over Israel, and God explained what those painful results of spiritual idolatry would be for their relationship. I asked all of you guys at the end of last week to take some alone time with the Lord and to ask him where your bales and your blind spots might be, and I hope that you were able to do that this week. I hope you were able to discuss some of that in your groups tonight, but if you didn't have the chance, it's not too late. Make some time this week to listen to him, and I just would beg you not to skip it. Now, like I said, we're moving into the rest of Hosea 2, so... If you guys would flip open your Bibles or your binders or your phones to Hosea 2, verse 14. We're moving from last week, a section that we ended with the consequences of idolatry, into a section on mercy and hope and restoration. So let's get started. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. The first thing I want you guys to notice here is that big therefore This is a transition word, and this is God connecting what he said in the previous section to what he's gonna say next. So remember last week, God said he was gonna expose Israel, punish Israel for going after other lovers. So, what would we expect then to come after the therefore? We might think they deserve exile or death or some other extreme punishment for forgetting God and deserting him, right? But what does God do but the exact opposite? He shows them grace when he could show them judgment. The text says he's going to allure her and speak tenderly to her. He's pursuing Israel instead of giving up on them and giving them what they actually deserve. He gives Israel chance after chance after chance to come back to him. And why would he do that? Because he wants them. He wants them back. This language... Verse 14, this is courtship language, ladies. This is God going to woo Israel back to himself. He wants to entice his people to return to relationship with him because it's the actual best place for us to be. He knows that, but we don't know that. We're afraid to trust him. We're afraid he might hurt us. We're afraid to be vulnerable in front of God. But y'all, this God is a God who never changes. His character is the same then as it is now, and he is actually perfect. He truly cares about our well-being, and he really loves us. He really wants us. So if you are here tonight and you have ever felt unwanted or uninvited or ashamed or broken, messed up, not good enough, unlovable, a failure, ugly, damaged, too much, not enough, not beautiful, any of those things, all of those things, there is a God, our God, the God of the universe, who is calling you home to himself. He wants you and he loves you. And this love will actually fulfill you. It has the power to fill you up to overflowing. And it has the power to change how you think about yourself and how you live your life. And why would a perfect holy God love the likes of us? How could he? Because if we are in Christ, when he looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. He sees the beautiful woman that he created and knew would be born before there was time. This is what Jesus died for. He died so that we could have this type of intimate relationship with God the Father. He died to bring us back into fellowship. He died to reunite the ultimate bride and groom sisters I will say it again and I'm going to repeat it a couple times tonight he is calling us home and this is what it means to abide this is what the new testament means when it says abide this is making our home with God this is agreeing with him that living is living in his presence is the very best place for us to live like I said the text shows him as a tender God and alluring God He wants us all for himself. He is jealous for us. He doesn't want us to look at other gods. He doesn't want us moving in with anyone or anything else. And this is not like earthly jealousy. He is jealous for us because he knows that those idols that we want will not deliver. They will never satisfy us. He alone can give us what we need. He alone knows what we need because he made us. But let's get back to the verse. What does it say that God will bring us into? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the, the wilderness. Why? Why would he bring us into the wilderness instead of a place of abundance, like a garden? Tim Chester asks the question this way. He says, what shall Yahweh do with a people who can neither repent nor even understand the need for it, nor recognize that Baal is a lie, nor divorce themselves from their mother and her ways. He must strip mother Israel of all she has. That is, the institutions of Israel must die, the shrines must burn, the crops must fail, the kings and army must perish, the priests and princes must fall into disgrace, and mother Israel and her children must once again wander in the wilderness. When this happens, at last, They will see both the truth and the lies for what they are and return to Yahweh, husband and father. God's motivations are always based in relationship. Keep that as the foundation, that thought as your foundation tonight as we talk about the wilderness. God's motivations are always based in relationship. So, what is the wilderness? The wilderness is an uninhabited place, a wild place, as the first part of the word suggests. This is Exodus language. The wilderness years are a huge part of Israel's history. The wilderness is the place where Israel began as a nation, where they were born, and where the marriage between God and Israel began. It's like God is saying to Israel, I'm taking you back to where we fell in love back to the early days when I loved you and you loved me. When we made promises to each other, I'm taking you back there. And he's taking Israel back there alone. He wants to bring her to a place where it's just the two of them. God wants to remind them of why they entered the covenant with him in the first place. Why they love each other. and He also wants to do this with us. And why is that? Why did Israel fall in love with God? Why does anyone fall in love with God? Because he shows himself trustworthy. He did what? Deliver them from slavery in Egypt, kept them safe from their enemies, gave them food and water in the desert. They saw him do amazing things, and so they believed that they could trust him fully. So now God's taking them to the wilderness again to renew them and to remind them of how things were at the beginning. Now back to verse 15, what does God say he's going to do in the wilderness? Two things. First, he's going to give her vineyards in the wilderness. Now I am no plant expert, friends. I have a very black thumb. But basic knowledge of the desert tells me that not many things are going to grow there naturally. But don't quote me, I am not an expert. Only the Lord, the supernatural God, can provide in the desert. Baal cannot. With God, dead things can grow in the desert. Even when it seems like there is no fertile ground, God can make things grow. And he doesn't just say vineyard. He says vineyards, plural. This isn't a few measly little grapes. This is a picture of abundance. And this flies in the face of Baal, the supposed fertility god, right? Yahweh is the true god of fertility. So he's going to give her vineyards, and he's going to turn the Valley of Acor into a door of hope. Now, this is such a rich and beautiful reference. It's uh, especially poignant to me as I taught it back in Joshua four years ago. Um, So the Valley of Achor is referring to an incident that happened in Joshua chapters six and seven. You can go back and read it there if you'd like. Um, After the fall of Jericho, Joshua warned the Israelites uh, not to take any of the devoted things in the cities that they would defeat in the promised land. So the cities and everything in them were meant to be destroyed except for any precious metals, which went into the Lord's treasury. So the Israelites come out of Jericho. They head into the next battle, fully expecting to win, but they don't. Joshua is confused. He's distraught before the Lord because they're supposed to be winning. They're supposed to have God on their side, and God's supposed to deliver the victory. But God reveals to Joshua that there's a man named Achan who's taken some of the devoted things, and he defiled Israel. And so he tells Joshua, consecrate the people and get rid of the devoted things so Joshua does this and Achan confesses to taking a cloak and some silver some silver and gold so Joshua takes Achan all the devoted things his whole family all of his belongings and they go to the valley of Achor and there is where they stone him and his family and they burn everything with fire The word, Achor, means trouble. The valley got that name from that incident. And clearly, Achan is a picture of what trouble can befall us when we take our eyes off of the Lord. And this is exactly the behavior that God is calling out in the Israelites, and he's calling them to turn from in Hosea. They, too, have taken their eyes off the Lord. So what's God saying in all of this? Why does he bring the valley of Achor up? He's telling us he's going to turn trouble into hope. He's declaring another complete reversal. A place of shame and sin is going to become a place of rescue and hope. Isaiah 65 is the only other place where the Valley of Achor is mentioned in the whole Bible. And Isaiah 2 proclaims restoration. He says, the Valley of Achor will become a place for herds to lie down, a place for God's people who have sought him That's Isaiah 65, 10. What a promise that is. So God's giving her vineyards, turning trouble into hope. And how is Israel going to respond? She says, or the text says, she will answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of Egypt. I'm asking a lot of the. Questions to the text tonight, but how did she answer as at the time when she came out of Egypt? We go back to Exodus, and we read that she sang. Exodus 15 is the song of Moses. When the Israelites made it across the Red Sea and saw their oppressors swallowed up in the sea, they sang to God. They praised him, and they thanked him for rescuing them and delivering them, and they trusted him to protect them moving forward, and they called him their God. So this place, this wilderness place, that God is revealing himself to them and speaking tenderly to them and making new things grow, this is the place where Israel is going to remember that God is the Lord. This is where she'll respond to God again and call him her own. And God often does this in our lives too. He takes us out into the desolate place to be alone with him. He removes things from our lives so that we can focus on him and remember who he is. Before we move on from the wilderness, I want to invite my friend Elise up here to share a little bit on this topic with you. Uh, last month at our teaching collective, Elise gave a talk on the wilderness, and I wanted her to share some of her personal wisdom on the topic, so I'm going to ask her a couple of questions. Hi, Elise. Hello. You guys can clap. You can welcome her if you want. all right miss elise my first question elise had these in advance just so you know i'm not throwing her under the bus um my first question is what has the wilderness looked like in your life
2: well i would have to say that um i didn't really give it a lot of thought until you asked me and i was like oh okay well now i have to think about what it looks like in my life um but I would have to say it definitely has come in stages. Um, When you first enter into the wilderness, you're still on the cusp of civilization, and so it doesn't really feel very wild yet, Um, but I'd have to say it started four years ago when I came back to Dayton from college. Um, The last couple of years of college were hard for me. I was still a Christian, but I had let numbness and apathy Take over uh, my heart, and similar to your story, God had to strip me down. Um, He had to strip me down and take away all the sources that I was depending on instead of Him. So, no job, took away my car, um, humbled me, and um, I would have to say about a year and a half ago is when um, He started to take me into the heart of the wilderness, um, when I asked him to make me a mover and shaker for him and to set me on fire. And I didn't realize when you ask God to set you on fire, he sticks you in the flames. (laughs) He, um, uh, right after I asked that, um, a stream of adversities began to happen. Um, I had kitchen troubles, busted pipes, car troubles. Um, I've been struggling with singleness. I've had unexpected health diagnoses. Um, I've—it's been a long, hard season. And throughout it all, I was like, "God, why are you allowing this to happen to me?" And He's and, like, chuckling, and he's like, oh, you asked for it. Don't you remember? Um, but he's been so faithful through it all, and he's been teaching me that in order for me to truly and deeply love him, I need to truly and deeply trust him. And that can only happen when given instances where I need to trust him and him alone. So... I'm not the same person that I was four years ago. I'm a changed person um, because that's what the wilderness does. It changes you, and it's a place where God takes you to give you a story that you may not have wanted for yourself. But um, it's a good story nonetheless. And there is struggle in the wilderness, but it's a good struggle.
1: So we just talked about how God speaks tenderly to us and allures us in the wilderness. So could you tell us a little bit about how you've experienced God's tenderness in all that? When you first sent me this
2: question, I started crying, um, because if I'm 100% honest, he hasn't felt tender to me. Um, but feeling is very different than real life, um. He hasn't felt tender because um, I use this example of when a sheep is running scared, you're not going to be like, oh, come, 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 it's okay, it's okay. You're going to be like, you're going towards a cliff. You better stop now, and you're going to be knocked down um, and dragged to safety. Um, But he has been tender to me. He's provided for me every single time. It may not have been the way that I wanted it to be, the time that I wanted it to take place. Um, But he's been sustaining me and he's been drawing me closer and closer to him. The past few months for me have been very difficult, wilderness wise. I haven't had a lot of adversity happen, but I've just been in a lot of emotional turmoil um, and really wrestling with what it looks like to walk intimately with him and to truly love him and receive his love. And the lessons that he's been teaching me now are especially sweet because for the past two years, he's been tenderizing my heart. you you have to tenderize, you know, um, hearts in order to receive the messages that God has for you sometimes. And if he had tried to teach me these lessons a year, two, three years ago, it would have bounced off of thick skins. Um, but he's been revealing to me my utter desperate need for him. And um, he's been a good father to me that disciplines but comforts after the discipline. I... When I think of his provision, I think of, and I brought an example, Um, I went on vacation recently, and I was like, okay, God, I'm on vacation at the beach. I would love for you to give me a conch shell, because last time I was here, you gave me a conch shell, and it was just a beautiful gift, and I would love that. And I walked on that beach two or three times a day for a week looking for conch shells, and he gave them to me. But they were broken, they were broken, but he was teaching me a lesson of even though it's broken, it's still beautiful, and it's still
1: good. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So the last question that I had for Elise um, was, what would you say to anyone in a in a wilderness season right now and especially a season that feels like it might never end. I have a lot to say but I don't know how much time I have so I'm
2: going to keep it short. Um, you're not alone. The minute you start believing that lie that you're alone is when Satan is cutting off your oxygen. He's cutting off your community and he's cutting you off from God. It's Those are things you desperately need and The fact is, he's with you in the wilderness because he sent Jesus out into the wilderness. Um, When, this is something I talked about with the wilderness talk, but Jesus sets the example for us of how we walk in the wilderness because after he was baptized and he was given the name of Christ and the identity of this is who you are, my beloved son, he went to the wilderness for 40 days And he fasted, and he prayed, and he spent that deep, intimate time with God before he was called out into public ministry. And he was tempted by Satan there, and he can relate to us in our weakness and in our need because he was through it. Forty days without food, y'all, that's a long time. That's a long time. I would have died. I would have died. Um, So what I would say is if you're in that place, you feel alone, pray. Pray. It's your lifeline to God. And if you are in an intimate season with him, you need to be connected to him. Fast if you need to. Um, It doesn't need to be from food. It could be from social media. It could be from dating. It could be from anything. Anything. Um, But relinquish back to God what you've been focusing your attentions on aside from him. Be prepared to fight this devil because he's going to throw everything he can to get you away from him. And I think I would be doing everyone a disservice if I didn't say that maybe our entire time on earth is a wilderness season. So if you feel like you're in a wilderness season that doesn't end, I want you to take encouragement and hope that it does end. But it may not be in the time and in the place that you want it to, because Christ will come again, and he will redeem us, and it will be beautiful, and there'll be a feast, and it'll be glorious, but um, he does pull us out of the wilderness, and but it's in his time, and it's in his place, um, and he knows us, and he knows what we can bear. And so when it comes to that point where we can't take anymore, he will pull us out of it. But I just sometimes I just feel like deep down in my bones that this entire time we're here, it, this is what it's meant to be. And what, what is honestly, what's truly better than learning to walk deeply and intimately with God, even through really just hard and painful things like cancer? Infertility, loneliness. He's still there and he's still good. So I'm gonna read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 10 over everyone. Um, Because if we wanna live as women who are wild and free, we need to go to where the wild and free things live. They don't live in tame places. We have to go. Um, So saying that, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, And I trust that he's going to do that for each and every one of us. But I also have to trust him when it doesn't come when I want it to. Thank you,
1: Lise. Thank you for sharing with us. Abundance is coming. All right, sisters. Let's talk about what that's going to look like. Our second section is God's vision of restoration. Starting in verse 16. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Bale, For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And we'll skip to verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Mm. Good things, good things ahead. So these verses are all a description of what it will be like when Israel returns to God. So we're going to walk through these quickly. So first one, they're going to call each other intimate names. It's verse 16. This is an invitation from God to think differently about him, to think intimately about him. Do we think about God like this? Do we actually think about God as our husband? Think about what it might mean for you to call God your husband. He is our husband and our lover, not just our Lord and our King. Secondly, it says God will take away the remembrance of Baal. He will take away their idols for their good, for the health of their marriage with him. Now, quick side story. God did this for me. You guys heard my story last week, and I want to share this little bit of it. Um, After my husband and I had been working through the practicals of restoring relationship together, um, I was struggling with old memories all the time um, that, would, that were really painful and difficult. Um, I was experiencing restoration with my husband, but still getting these painful memories. And I asked God to take them all away, if he would just take it all away and just leave the memory of what he did. And He answered my prayer. And so to this day, I can't remember all of those little things that happened. Um, I used to look, you know, everywhere and see a reminder, but now that doesn't happen. And when I think of my story, I think of his goodness and his faithfulness. So he did that for me. He did it for the Israelites. He can do it for you too. The third thing is this covenant that God makes with the earth. So this is a little weird, but it's restoration language like Noah new beginning kind of language John Piper says that it's as if God is saying if only my estranged wife will come back she will find paradise it will be so good won't you come home this is how he feels about us I'll say it again he's calling us home he wants us to know how much better it is for us to be with him than with our lesser loves Do you believe that God is longing for you in this way, that he wants to be with you? All he wants to do is to be with you in paradise. Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 10, talk about God as this loving, forgiving husband. It says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's our God. That's the God who wants to be with us. So covenant with the earth and then no war, only safety. God says he's gonna take away the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And he's gonna make us lie down. Nobody lies down when they're threatened or when they're afraid. This is a picture of complete security. Next, their provisions are going to be replenished. This is where we skip to verse 21. God's going to restore order. He's going to restore the order of things after judgment is over. So he's going to make things right again. He's going to provide the rain that is needed for the cycle of growth to begin again. This is another picture of abundance, another reversal from the wilderness picture. God's also alluding here to the pagan idea that there are different gods controlling the earth, controlling the sky, controlling the crops. He says, there's only one God, it's me, and everything comes from me. Remember Jezreel? God is redeeming that too. The word Jezreel is now used in reference to its original meaning, God plants. God is the planter, the provider, the sustainer, and he always will be. Lastly, Israel is going to receive mercy and will again be God's people. We're going to talk about the specifics of God's vows to Israel in a moment, but this is God's overall vision of what it's going to be like. Restoration, reversal, mercy. Israel is going to turn toward God instead of away from him. There's going to be restored fellowship and intimacy. Israel and God will be each other's again. Isaiah 62, 4 echoes this. It says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. What? He says he's going to call us, My delight is in her. We could just camp out there all day. Now, this last verse, not my people, my people, mercy, no mercy, these are the the two cross-references that we asked you guys to look at the New Testament uses, and I want to hit those just quickly. Um, Both of them flip the script. They talk about not my people as a positive one, just like in this passage in Isaiah. So quickly, the Romans 9 passage, Paul's applying our verse from Hosea to the Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles were always considered not my people until Jesus arrived. Paul is using the verse to say, what if God is going to do something unexpected in his family? What if things are upside down from what we think? What if the Gentiles were part of the plan all along? Which, of course, we know now that they were and they are. And then Peter is also applying this idea to followers of Jesus. He's saying that we were all no mercy and not my people. And now we are God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. God always has the goal of restored fellowship and relationship with us. In all times, in all places. The vision was realized for the Israelites when God brought them back from exile. And it was realized for the whole world when Jesus' life, death, and resurrection secured everyone outside of Israel a place in God's family. And it will be finally and fully realized when Jesus returns to restore all things. It's a beautiful picture. And it's coming. It's coming for Israel, or it came for Israel, and it's coming again for us. Now let's talk about God's wedding vows to Israel. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God uses the word betrothed here three times. This is another reversal because when's the last time we saw a word repeated three times? That was whoredom. This is betrothed. This is a big reversal. So, what does betrothed mean? Being betrothed means to be engaged, to be married, but in ancient Israelite culture, it was an even more formal engagement than we understand engagement to be. It's easy for us to break an engagement in modern times, but this was a serious commitment and it was rarely reversed. A bride price was required and the father's acceptance of that made the union final. Now, being betrothed to God is even different than being betrothed to a human, because God is the one who is bringing everything to the table. We will break every promise that we make, and he will keep them all. So this three times betrothal is a declaration of God's total commitment to us. It's like how holy, holy, holy means most holy. Betrothed, betrothed, betrothed means most betrothed. So Israel, bringing nothing to the betrothal, But what does God bring? These are his vows. I will betroth you to me forever. This is permanent. It's intimate. It will never end. There's nothing Israel can do to break it. Israel will always be God's wife. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. These are all the areas that Israel happens to be lacking in. God is saying that he is gonna bring them all into the marriage. He will be righteous. He will be just. He will be loving and he'll be merciful enough for the both of them. He'll be righteous, which means he'll step in to make the very worst things right. He'll be just, which means he's gonna restore the order of things. He'll be loving. This is said love. Immovable, loving kindness, devotion, loyalty, If y'all have not listened to the song has said on the Hosea playlist, stop your life, go listen to it. You will not regret it. Okay, this is exactly the love that it's talking about. And then lastly, he's going to be merciful. We talked a lot about mercy last week. It's that heartfelt compassion put into action. He also says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Faithfulness means he will never leave, no matter what. Never. They can trust him to depend on and depend on him to care for them just like a good husband does, even when they are unfaithful. And the last bit, he says that they shall know the Lord. Knowing God means to have an intimate, experiential knowledge of him. It's not the same as knowing about him. And the Bible uses this word no for marital intimacy, like Adam knew Eve or whatever, and then it says there was a baby. So (laughs) no is intimate, guys. So God's declaring this, and as he's declaring it, he's reclaiming the sexual narrative from the idolatrous culture. He's reminding the Israelites that intimacy with him is better than any intimacy with any other God or any other human. He's saying intimacy looks like a faithful marriage covenant. And this is so distorted in our culture, friends, so, so distorted. Our world is confused about sex and confused about intimacy. We crave it, but we look everywhere for it except for the maker of it, God. Intimacy with Him is what's actually going to fill the hole that we have when we're looking for it in other places. Places like sex outside of marriage, porn, internet relationships. We can even look within our own earthly marriage for the fulfillment that only God can bring. And the only remedy for all of this is to hear God's call, return to Him, and let Him satisfy you. Relate to Him as a loving husband, not simply as your owner. Or your master. We can't just know God formally. We can't just know him from afar. He has to be, and he wants to be part of every little bit of our lives. He wants full access, just like a husband has with a wife, and a wife has with a husband. He wants, to give, wants us to give ourselves to him fully, and him alone, I'm going to throw you another John Piper quote, you guys. He's got a great message on Hosea on our resource page. Listen to it. He says, God will not hold Israel at a distance. He wants full intimacy with her. He will withhold no fellowship or communion with her. So God makes his vows to Israel to be all these things, righteous, just, loving, merciful, faithful, personal to Israel and to us. But not only that, he'll also impart these qualities to us as we are united to him in marriage. How amazing is that? We're going to experience this through union with Christ. He is in us and he makes us more like him every day. Jesus is God, so he is all of these things too. And we don't bring anything to the table in our marriage with him. But he starts to rub off on us. We start to look like him. It's amazing. And remember back to verse 23. God says the response of his people to these vows is going to be, you are my God. Because of Jesus, this is our response as well. How could we respond any other way to what he's promised us? To be with us forever. To be faithful forever. And yet... We don't always accept. So these are God's vows to Israel, to us. He has not changed, but He is changing us. Our last section is Hosea 3. And this is God's picture of redemption. Chapter 3, verse 1 And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I, So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So what's happening here? This is the end of the narrative section of Hosea. This is the last We're going to see of Hosea and Gomer. So let's walk through. Verse 1 says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. God says, Hosea, go. Love Gomer again. He's telling him to pursue Gomer even though she has deserted him. The Hebrew word for love used here is Ahab. And this is an intimate love or a family kind of love it's a preferential love something it's used to describe for something that you love above all other similar things so it's used to describe Abraham's love for his son Isaac Jacob and Rebecca's love for each other it's also used to describe the love Leah wished that she had from Jacob it's Jacob's love for Joseph it's David and Jonathan's love for each other It's a song of Solomon love and it's the same love that God uses when he asks us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's Deuteronomy 7, 8. So this is a Deuteronomy love. This love is used by Moses to describe the love of God all the time in the Old Testament. This is also the kind of love that the other man in Gomer's life is loving her with. The text does not say go buy back Gomer who is now owned by somebody else because she's your rightful property. It says, go again, a.k.a. you've done this before, chapter one. Go again and show love, Ahab love, to a woman who is loved by another man. Just like God goes again and again to show love to his adulterous people who are not getting it. And the way that Hosea expresses the love is by buying her back. That's Hosea putting love into action. It's practical love. The call was to love. More on that in a minute. First, a note about cakes of raisins, because I know you're all wondering, what is up with the cakes of raisins? The cakes of raisins are probably a special occasion food at the very least, possibly a food offered to Baal, possibly a food eaten by idol worshippers as a fertility food. I like what Tim Chester says here. He says, it seems a ridiculous thing to highlight, but perhaps that is the point. Imagine a churchgoer opting for a heretical church over an evangelical church because they serve donuts after the meeting. The main takeaway here is about lesser loves. Gomer has gone after a lesser love outside her marriage with Hosea. Israel has gone after a lesser loves outside her marriage to God. So verse two, Hosea is obedient. He goes, he loves Gomer, and he does that by buying her back. We don't know the details. We don't know why she needed to be bought. Some commentators say that The price is similar to the price that you would pay to buy a slave, which is 30 shekels, but we don't know for sure. We do know that this is actually a fairly low price, showing that the world didn't think Gomer was worth that much. But Hosea disagrees, and this is the attitude of God toward us. When the world tells us that we are worthless, God says we have value because we are made by him and we image him. He tells us that we are worth a great price, the price of the life of Jesus. Now, the word for bought is not the same word as the word for redeem. It's a much rarer word that means bargain or trade. So Hosea was bargaining to get Gomer back. We're going to see that word for redemption later at the end of Hosea, when God says he's going to redeem his people from death, and that's in chapter 13. But even though the proper word for redemption isn't here, the story still carries the idea of redemption. Redemption is the act of buying someone or something back that once belonged to you. The Hebrew word is ga'al, and that word is used for for Boaz in the story of Ruth, her kinsman redeemer. And it's the word used to describe God when he's called our redeemer. So when we talk about being redeemed in the church, we're certainly talking about being bought back by God. He paid quite a price for us, the life of his son, but the word redemption also carries the meaning of being saved, being reclaimed, being recovered, or brought back into fellowship. And by now we all know Hosea mirrors Jesus. I hope we all know that. I hope I've said it enough. I'll say it some more. But he doesn't just mirror Jesus in the act of buying us back and paying the price for us. He mirrors Jesus in his love for Gomer. Remember, God called him to love, not just buy back. He loves her by practically providing for her. And he loves her by telling her the truth. And he loves her by being faithful to her and keeping his promises to her. And Jesus loves us in this way our provider and our promise keeper. His name is faithful and true. So verse 3, Hosea's got Gomer back. What does he do first? He reminds her who she is, and he reminds her how the marriage works. Basically, he says, you're mine again, and here's a reminder of how this goes. We belong to each other. We don't cheat on each other. Now, how does that reminder relate to the last two verses in chapter 3? Gomer has to go many days without her other lovers. And so Israel has to go many days without the idols that they rely on. Only then will they return and seek God and fear him and come home to God. The Lord purges and removes idols as an act of love. He will leave Israel with no leadership. He'll take away everything that they use to worship idols with. He'll take all of the physical idols out of their houses. And he's doing that out of love. A note about David here. The text says that they're going to return to David, but David is long dead. So this is a reference to the house or the line of David. A reference to the northern kingdom kind of swallowing their pride, going back under the leadership of the line of David. It's also a reference to God keeping his promise about the line of David producing a future Messiah. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. David is the one head that Hosea referred back to in Hosea chapter 1, verse 11. And ultimately, we see Jesus fulfill these things. So let's review where we've been tonight. God's going to draw his people into the wilderness. He's going to restore them. He's going to betroth himself to them and redeem them. And Hosea and Gomer's life together was the picture of all of that for us. And we don't know anything more about their life. Did Gomer turn away from her past and remain faithful? Did she leave Hosea again? These are questions that we cannot answer. But one thing we know for sure is that Hosea was called to an extremely difficult life. I want to take a moment just to think about that. God asked Hosea to do something hard. Why is it worth doing the hard things that God calls us to? Jesus tells us that in this world that we're going to have trouble, but we can have hope because he's overcome the world. We live in the time in between his first and second coming the already but not yet, where his kingdom has, is coming, but it's not fully here yet. It's a hard place to live. There's a tension. We know the curse has been reversed, but we don't get to see it yet in full. So yes, we're going to experience suffering because of where we live and when we live. But the New Testament tells us that suffering is actually a privilege because it brings us closer to Christ, even though this is completely backwards to us. So if God has called you to something hard in your life or is calling you to something hard, I don't want to belittle that right now because I know that many of you in this room are suffering. But I do want to gently encourage you that what you are doing is worth doing. It is worth learning to suffer well. Why? I like to ask why a lot, you guys. Like I just mentioned, there is a tremendous potential for personal sanctification We become more like Jesus and we become closer to Jesus when we have these difficult assignments from God. We can choose to say with Paul that our momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. If you're in one of these seasons and you're struggling against God and you're trying to understand it, ask him to graciously show you just a little bit of what he's doing. Or simply ask him to make knowing him fully your ultimate goal no matter what your circumstances are. That's not easy, but it is worth asking. So not only is it worth it for our personal growth, but your difficult assignment is an opportunity to be a picture of Jesus to a broken world. When you take part in the hard work of redemption and reconciliation, you're showing the world a radically different way of living. You are making the way of Jesus look incredibly enticing to people. I want you guys to think about this with me. How might Hosea have felt knowing the story of his marriage would influence and bring people back to God for thousands of years? What if, as he was telling somebody again why he named his kid bloodshed and no mercy and not mine, what if he knew the picture of God's redemptive love that he was going to show to people? Our acts of obedience can have ripple effects for generations. Our obedience might seem small or insignificant to us. It may go against the grain. It may cause you great pain. But it says something to the watching world about God. It says that he is better than our comfort. He's better than fitting in. It says that he is worth it, which we know that he is. Let me be clear, though. Even if no one ever sees your obedience, it is still worth it. It is worth it. If he's asking you to do something hard, it's because he has something good for you in it. Namely, closeness with him. Because that's what he wants most. God could be asking you to do something hard that no one might see. Like waking up in the morning to meet with him. Or cutting down on your phone scrolling. Or taking care of your body in a certain way. Or spending more time playing with your kids. Whatever it is. If he's calling you to it, I urge you tonight to do it. If there's something in your mind right now, I urge you to do it. You will experience his blessing. So, tonight, if you are in a wilderness, if you are wrestling with a difficult assignment from God, if you are suffering, if you are feeling far from him, know that he is committed to your flourishing. It is his joy to beautify you, his bride. And make you ready for the wedding feast that is coming. He has not forgotten you. His plan is to love you fully and completely. To devote himself to you forever and to enjoy a glorious future with you. And all the power to keep the marriage covenant relies on him. He's going to keep all the vows to you. Even if you forget him. Even if you're mad at him. Even if you're confused by what he's doing in your life. Even if you go after other loves for a while. He knows you can't keep your vows but he enters into them anyways. That's how much he loves us. That's how precious we are to him. We are so absolutely precious to him and wanted by him that he sent Jesus to ransom and redeem and then beautify us. This is God's extravagant love. And what God is longing for us to recognize is that his love is better than what? Life. His great desire for us is for us to desire him. I'm gonna say that one more time. His great desire for us is for us to desire him. That's what brings him joy. That's what glorifies him. This is the message of Hosea. This is the message of the gospel. God loves the rebel and he loves the cheater and he loves the thief and the hypocrite and the idol worshiper. His love is what turns all of our hard rebel hearts into soft ones that can know him. And love him. His love sent Jesus. Let's thank him for that today. Let's believe this is how he feels about us. Let's answer him like we did when we first fell in love with him. Let's say in response to him, in response to those unbreakable vows that he is making with us, let's say to him, you are my God. Let's say that to him with our words. Let's say that to him with our life. Pray with me. Father, We say tonight you are our God and we say thank you that we are your people. We say thank you that where once we were no mercy, now we have received mercy. Father, your love is better than life. But so often we wanna go after lesser things. God, we pray tonight that you would turn our eyes to you. Turn our hearts to you. Do whatever you have to do, God. Take us into the wilderness. Take us through a hard season. Give us a difficult assignment, God. We may not want it in the moment, but we know that what you have is good for us and that you want relationship with us, Lord. And we say we want it with you too. Help our lives to to say that too, God. By your spirit, would you help us each day to apprehend your love, to see your love when it's all around us, to celebrate your love, to praise you, to sing to you, to thank you for all that you've done, to thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming for us, for pursuing us, for coming down here to earth to live and die and rise again so that we can have this relationship, that we can experience this love. God, thank you for holding off so that all of us could be part of your family. And we look forward to that day when there's no more wilderness. And we look forward to that day when there's no more suffering. And we look forward to that day when we can fully experience your love and your presence. And we can see you face to face. And we can see you as you are. But tonight we say thank you for showing us just a little bit of who you are and how you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Homework. 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 Okay. This week, we're moving on. We're moving into chapter four. Chapter four through six, three. So don't forget those Last three verses. Continue making notes. Check out cross references as you want to. Go down the rabbit trails if you want to. Um, But your tool this week that we're introducing is to compare translations. So, like I mentioned at the beginning of the study, Hosea is difficult to translate. So, you may come into some confusing differences between the translations, but we encourage you to. Stick with it and ask questions um, and ask the Lord what uh, he is really saying in those passages. We typically read out of the ESV. You guys know that. So the NIV and the CSB are good places to start as far as comparing translations, but you can feel free to go further than that if you like. Um, You can answer the discussion questions to get ready for your discussion, and you can fill out response questions if you would like to as well. If you have any questions about homework let me know look out for a teacher talk we'll talk about translations sometime this week and um, that's it have a good week ladies
0: thank you for listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's word, visit us at daytonwomenintheword.com on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in his word today, sister.